All right, I always welcome the opportunity to do what I'm doing this morning. So, uh, because I did it for a long time and I still like to do it. All right? So, as Aaron said, we're going to continue, uh, since Aaron's moving us through the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, written to a group of people that, and a church he started. Uh, in Ephesus. Ephesus is located, by the way, in western Turkey today, very far western Turkey. I've been there. It's one of the primary ruins in the ancient world that, that is just a stunning and powerful uh, excavation that's going on there. So Paul started this church in Ephesus. Here's what you need to always remember about Paul, especially as you're looking at those letters that he wrote. Um, they're written to what we would call Greek cities or Roman cities or Gentile cities. Paul's a Jew. Christianity has its beginning in Jerusalem, has its beginning in Jerusalem where the cross and the resurrection took place. And uh, Paul then was the one who took this uh, out of Judaism more than any other, took this out of Judaism and out the message of Jesus out into the Gentile world. He's called the apostle to the Gentiles. So just kind of frame that in your mind because we'll get back to it sort of as we're moving through this today. But uh, we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 11 to the end of the chapter. Would you pray with me? God, your book is open and... Um, we are going to do the most daring thing of all. We're going to read it. And then we're going to talk about it. And we're going to agree together to try to learn from it and apply what we learn to the living of our lives out there in your world. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. So uh, my particular version of the Bible has a little title ahead of these verses. It says, Jew and Gentile reconciled through Christ. Paul is writing to the Gentile church in Ephesus. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that would be the Jews, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, far away the Gentiles, near the Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together 
and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The church is the holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of God, and we thank him for it. So the famous American poet, Robert Frost, gave us these memorable lines. You may remember them from American literature once upon a time when you were in school, or you'll hear them, children, some other time, perhaps. He gave us these words. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. Our scripture reading of the morning is about walls. Dividing walls of hostility, Paul calls them. Dividing walls of hostility that Paul says are broken down in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you hear nothing else today, and maybe you won't, this singular thought may let you leave here with at least a glimmer of hope today. Here it is. Every barrier that divides people from each other may come crashing down in Christ Jesus. That's possible. Every barrier that divides people from each other may come crashing down in Christ Jesus because united to Jesus, we are united to God and united to God through Christ, we are united to one another and the walls may come a-tumbling down. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he had in mind a particular dividing wall. It was the wall of prejudice and hatred that divided Jew from Gentile. For you see, the Jew of Jesus' day had an immense contempt that often crossed the border into hatred for the Gentiles. One renowned biblical scholar explains it this way, and I'm going to quote him because he says it so well. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a pregnant Gentile woman in labor, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out immediately. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Even to go into a Gentile house rendered a Jew unclean. Before Christ, the barriers were up. After Christ, Paul is saying, the barriers are down. Before Christ, there was no hope of unity in Christ. The unity has come. The Apostle Paul says in verse 14, look at it with me. He says, for he himself, and he's talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace, 
who has made the two, Jews and Gentiles, one in the church and has destroyed the barrier, has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Hear this again. Someone there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. And that someone, according to Paul, is God. The dividing wall of hostility. It's a a curious phrase with a particular meaning to the apostle, to the Ephesians, to Paul. Most likely, almost certainly, Paul had in mind a particular wall, a real wall, that stood as a barrier in the very temple of God at Jerusalem. Actually, there were a series of walls and a series of elevations on the Temple Mount, where the temple was. Being a Jew, Paul had visited the temple in Jerusalem many, many times. I've got a diagram of sorts, and I'm going to try to help you to understand this Jerusalem temple and its walls. If you look up here, you'll see number one. Number one is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was exactly what it says, the most hallowed place, and only one person could enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, and that one person was the high priest, and the high priest could only enter the temple once each year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which the Jews just celebrated not very long ago, by the way. The priest was the only one who could enter there to offer that annual sacrifice and to burn incense in the Holy of Holies. One time, one person, that's it. Number two is the veil. The veil or the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple proper. All right? And then there's the holy place. Then number four is an altar where incense was born. Then number five, see number five down there? Number five is called the court of the priests. That means it was for the priests only. It is some steps down from one, two, three, and four from the holy of holies. So a different elevation, priests only. Seven is the altar that is there, an altar of sacrifice. Six, six all the way around. Six is the court of the Israelites, which means it's the court for men only. Women were excluded. And then you have a series of steps going down to nine. Nine is the court of the women. It's inside the temple proper. It's court of the women. It's down It's down from the court of the men and the court of the priests and the Holy of Holies. Oh, and by the way, women can only be in there if it wasn't that time of the month. Okay? That's what's going on here. Those are courts. Those are barriers. Number 12, which is outside of the temple proper. Number 12 is the court of the Gentiles. This was a court that Gentiles could get into. It was very spacious outer court for tourists, if you would. Tourists who could look up to view the temple, but they were not allowed to go any further. They had no access to the temple itself, the temple of God's presence, the temple of sacrifice. Indeed, at intervals around this particular dividing wall, warning notices were posted in Greek and posted in Latin, the two primary languages outside of the 
uh, Aramaic that Jesus would have spoken. And those signs addressed to the Gentiles did not read no trespassing. Instead, they read, in effect, trespassers will be executed. In 1871, one of these notices was discovered by archaeologists, and it read this way. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. In other words, it was a capital crime for a Gentile to cross the dividing wall of hostility. 19 steps, see between 8 and 9? 19 steps and a 4-foot barrier wall separated the Gentiles from anywhere else in the temple. But Paul says that in Christ Jesus, the dividing wall has been destroyed. The barrier is down. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read of a time when a when a Roman centurion, a Gentile, therefore, came to Jesus, the Jew, asking Jesus for help. Lord, said the centurion, my servant, undoubtedly also a Gentile, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to the centurion, shall I come and heal him? Shall I come? <laughs> come where? Jesus, come to the home of a Gentile? Isn't that taboo? Come to heal a Gentile? Isn't that a no-no? Yet by his presence and by the word of healing he spoke that day, Jesus said, it's taboo no longer. It's a no-no no longer. The dividing wall is destroyed. And and. Not just the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, but get this, every other wall as well, I submit to you, may come down in Christ Jesus, should come down in Christ Jesus, is supposed to come down in Christ Jesus. Someone there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down, and that someone, according to the Apostle Paul, is God. The God who reveals himself most clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. Look with me to the life of Jesus and see it for yourselves. See the dividing wall between men and women crumble at the master's feet. In Jesus' day, Jewish women were seen as only a level better than, a level up, from the Gentiles. A pious Jewish male would begin each day with this prayer. Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, nor a slave, nor a woman. Women were to be seen and not heard. Women were to keep their faces veiled when going about their business in public, very much as you might still see in some fundamentalist Middle Eastern cultures to this very day. Jewish men were not to speak to, were not to make eye contact with women, except their wives and daughters, and that in their home. When I traveled uh, with my brother and his wife, who were missionaries for about 10 years to uh, um, to Israel. When I traveled with them to Israel the first time 10 years ago, 
we men were instructed by my brother not to make eye contact with Jewish and most especially Muslim women on the streets of Jerusalem. And the Jewish woman in Jesus' day had no legal status. She was the possession, first, of her father and then of her husband, theirs to do with pretty much as they pleased. And women in other cultures of the day, Greek and Roman cultures, were no better off. In fact, truth be told, they were not as well off even as Jewish women. Enter Jesus the Christ. And things change dramatically. He counted Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, as two of his best friends. They engaged him in dialogue, a no-no. They sat and studied at his feet, a no-no. They looked him, I suspect, in the eye when asking their questions. And at a well outside of a Samaritan city, the one called Sychar, Jesus, to the surprise of his disciples when they later heard about it, and in clear violation of the Jewish law code, Jesus entered into conversation with a woman of that city. And read the story for yourself, John chapter 4. It was a conversation that Jesus initiated. When the Pharisees cast before Jesus a woman caught in adultery, Jesus treated her with dignity and compassion. Jesus kept her from being stoned to death. Jesus sent her on her way to begin a new life. And when Jesus burst forth from Easter's tomb, he appeared first, not to his male band of disciples, which would have been much more appropriate, by the way, but to grief-stricken women also described as followers who went to visit his tomb. So it's no surprise, is it? It's no surprise that the Apostle Paul would later write this in his letter to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Remember that Jewish male prayer early in the morning? Thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, or a slave, or a woman. Paul takes that on directly. Equal in Christ, he says. One in Christ, he says. Sisters and brothers in the one family of God. And another wall came a-tumbling down. Unfortunately, it didn't really tumble. It just sort of started to crumble, and we're still working at it to this day. But in Jesus, it comes down. And let's not miss the dividing wall between priests and people. Remember the description of the temple grounds? Remember the separation wall and elevation between the court of the priests and the court of the Israelites? Priests only, priests only, higher than men only, who were higher than women only, well, that barrier between priest and people also came down in Jesus. The apostle Peter, that good, good friend, of Jesus, 
wrote this to all who follow. He had, he had all who follow Christ in mind, including you and me, I believe. He wrote this. But you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are all priests, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There is no priest and people separation any longer, says Peter. We are all priests. All who follow Jesus have the same access to the same Father, the same Son, and the same Holy Spirit. The priesthood of all believers is what we call that doctrine of the church. The Bible says, you're going to remember this, most of you, the Bible says that the moment Jesus spoke these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, the moment he spoke those words and breathed his last upon the cross, the temple veil, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything and everyone except the high priest and him only once a year, at the death of Jesus, the veil of the temple, says the story, was torn in two. The symbolism clear. Everyone, absolutely everyone now has direct access to God. You don't have to go through me or some high priest. I don't have to go through you. And yet don't miss this. By God's grace and invitation, we may choose and we are greatly encouraged to go before him together in community. And then there's the dividing wall between saints and sinners. It's the wall between the devoutly religious, the piously religious, and the sometimes more than slightly irreligious. On one occasion, Jesus spotted a fellow, a fellow named Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, and he was sitting at his tax collector's booth when Jesus spotted him. Tax collectors were a hated lot. They were considered traitors and dishonest scoundrels by their fellow citizens. Well, Jesus held out his hand to Matthew and said, follow me. And Matthew followed Jesus. Now, listen to Matthew's own account of an incident that occurred later that very same day. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, the devoutly religious, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were appalled at this clear violation of Jewish law and custom. Rabbi Jesus, teacher of all things holy, Rabbi Jesus dining with sinners? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous. I haven't come to call all you pious ones who figure you've already got it put together anyway. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm right where I need to be. I'm with the folks I came for. And another wall came tumbling down. The wall between the piously religious and the irreligious. And what about the wall between the rich and the poor? Jesus numbered both among his followers. The fishermen, Andrew and Peter and James and John, they were all from a lower class. In fact, they were derided as mere Galileans. While Joseph of Arimathea 
and Nicodemus the Pharisee, the two who claimed the body of Jesus to give it a decent burial, were members of the wealthy Jerusalem aristocracy. Jesus ministered to people of every class, ministered to people from all walks of life. When a poor widow, remember this story? When a poor woman gave the last coin to the temple poor box, Jesus called her blessed. And then to the rich young ruler, Jesus said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Be like that poor widow, Jesus said to the rich young man. And another wall came tumbling down in Jesus. The walls between Gentile and Jew, men and women, priests and people, saints and sinners, rich and poor. And then too, probably didn't see this one coming, folks. There is the wall between adults and children. And we're going to camp on that one for a bit. We're going to camp on it because it was and still is a far bigger wall than most people think. In the world to which Jesus came, that world of the first century, children were often treated with callous cruelty and disregard. It was commonplace in the Roman Empire for unwanted babies to be abandoned, for weak and deformed ones to be killed, and even healthy children were regarded by many as a partial nuisance because they got in the way of sexual promiscuity and complicated easy divorce. The theologian William Barclay tells us that a Roman father had tremendous power over his children. He could sell them as slaves. He could force them to work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands and punish them as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. There was a custom of child exposure in ancient Rome. When a child was born, it was placed before the father's feet. And if the father stooped and lifted the child, that meant the father acknowledged the child and wished the child to be kept. If he turned and walked away, it meant that he refused to acknowledge the child. And the child could quite literally be thrown out. Unwanted children were commonly left in the Roman Forum. There they became the property of anyone who cared to pick them up. They were collected at night by people who nourished them up in order to sell them as slaves or to stock the prostitution houses of Rome. While such things may be unthinkable in our society today, I'm going to suggest to you that many children in America are not that much better off. Did you know that 15 million children, 21%, of all children in our nation, one in every five live in poverty. And of course, if that child is Native American or black or Hispanic rather than white, the chances of them living in poverty triples to at the very least one in three. According to one report, poor children are too often hungry. They too often lack access to primary medical care. Poor children in America are isolated by lack of access to transportation, by segregated housing patterns, by lack of quality care and early education, and by isolation often in underfunded, segregated, highly stressed schools. Poor children are exposed too frequently to violence. Too many poor children drop out of school and end up in jail instead of in college, and it costs more to put them in jail than to give them an education. Many experts <clears throat> worry 
The children born in America today have less opportunity to escape poverty than they have in earlier generations of America. And of course, poor children are often also hungry children, or at the very least, here's the new term now, it softens it up a bit, food insecure. One in five children living in poverty, one in three if non-white. I just suggest to you we can do better than that. We must do better than that. And I think the church should be leading that charge. And no matter where you stand on the issue of abortion, I'm going to go there, sorry. But no matter where you stand on that issue, pro-choice or pro-life, no matter what your position is today, couldn't we at least agree that 650,000 abortions annually in America is too many. Some of you would say one is too many, but couldn't we at least say 650,000 is too many? And particularly so since most abortions have nothing to do with rape or incense or fetal abnormalities or a woman's health. Those four combine for 5% or less of the total of all abortions. I would submit to you that of the other 95%, very few abortions take place because embryos are not wanted. Very few abortions take place because a fetus is unwanted. No, virtually all abortions take place because children are not wanted, because children can be an inconvenience. Sorry, kids, you can be. Because in America, as in Rome of old, we want children on our terms. Friends, when abortion takes place 650,000 times each year in America, no matter where you stand on that issue, almost 1,750 times every day, do you really believe that has no effect on this culture's attitude towards children? I think we can have conversations that can at the very least substantially lower those kinds of no numbers. Followers of Christ, I want to say this as well. Our culture's attitude towards children must not be allowed to creep into the hallowed halls of the church. I can tell you from years of observation, 40 plus years as a pastor, that it is no easy task for children's ministry teams to recruit the adult volunteers that are needed to mentor and disciple, two key words, mentor and disciple the children and youth that God has given to us. So. When you're asked to come alongside our children or youth or to serve in the nursery, would you consider saying what I think Jesus would say? Just say yes. And say yes, not out of duty. Say yes, not out of obligation. Say yes, not because I just guilt tripped you, although that could work. <laughs> but because you care about the children, you care about the youth of the church. And not, by the way, because of the church of tomorrow, but because they with us are the church today, charged with us to follow Jesus every day. Friends, children were not an inconvenience to Jesus. Remember that day when some Jewish mothers approached Jesus with their kids? And they wanted Rabbi Jesus to lay hands on their kids. They wanted Rabbi Jesus to bless their kids. The disciples saw those children coming, herded them up, and turned them away from Jesus. Go away, they said, in effect. Go away. Can't you see the master is busy? He's busy with adults. He's busy with those adult things that really matter. He doesn't have time for children. Remember the story? When Jesus saw this, the Bible says, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Now, freely translated, that means Jesus was really ticked off. And if this weren't church, I could get even crasser than that. Jesus was really, really ticked off. 
I looked up that word indignant in an English dictionary. It means anger mingled with contempt, disgust, or abhorrence. That describes Jesus on that long ago day. He was totally ticked off. He scolded his adult disciples, said to them, let the little children come to me, you dummies. <laughs> you know, the Bible has sanitized some of what Jesus, I'm convinced Jesus used that word with those idiot disciples on more times than one, and this was one of those. We're just making Jesus nice, but let's put Jesus where he really was. He was ticked off. Let the little children come to me, you idiots, and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You're beginning to get the point of this teaching. The main thing, the thing I don't want you to miss, is just this. In Jesus, the walls come a-tumbling down, or at least they may if we give them a chance. And I haven't even discussed the many, many, many other walls that exist in our culture today, the dividing walls of hostility that are in the church and beyond the church, like beyond, between churches in the same cities, between denominations, within churches in denominations, the dividing walls between races and nationalities. And what about the deep divisions and almost vicious polarization in our country today between conservatives and progressives, between Republicans and Democrats, between those who are for this candidate and against that candidate? I'm going to turn 72 my next birthday. I know I don't look a day over 50, but let's not go there. It's not about me. I'm going to turn 72 next February, God willing, and in my over 50 years of adulthood, I do not believe I've seen America so deeply, passionately divided and our leaders unable to have civil conversations together about serious issues that will impact my grandchildren and their children after them for decades to come. And there are Christ followers on all sides of those things that divide us. I believe Jesus wants to tear down those walls and see the conversations begin. I pray for that. I pray that the peacemakers, those Jesus called sons and daughters of God, the peacemakers, I pray that the peacemakers will stand up and move into the gaps of division and invite dialogue over debate and conversation over hurling insults at one another. And I invite you to pray for that as well, particularly over the next 17 days maybe. Huh? Finally today, let me ask each of you, is there a dividing wall between you, some other person today, someone with him whom you need to be reconciled? Have you perhaps discovered today that Jesus really is very much on the side of such reconciliation, that Jesus is eager to de destroy every barrier and tear down every dividing wall of hostility that stands between people? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, middle of verse 15, Christ's purpose... <laughs> His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, Jews and Gentiles, into the one church, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them and all of us to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I'm envisioning Jesus on the cross today, arms outstretched, arms outstretched to his divided ones beckoning all of them to come to him, to come to his cross, to gather there at the feet of the Prince of Peace and find common ground. Someone there is who doesn't love a wall that wants it down. During my childhood and my teen years, my uh, father spent a number of years estranged from one of his brothers. 
While I never knew, still don't know, all of the details, I remember that division is very, very deep. The division was prolonged. The division was very, very painful to a lot of people in our family. And these were both good men. By the grace of God, these two brothers eventually reconciled. They were apart most of their 30s and into their 40s. But by the grace of God, these two brothers eventually reconciled and the walls came down and they became very, very close. And that was not too soon for my father's brother died in his early 50s. And perhaps, perhaps that explains the reason why a plaque hung for many, many years that I remember in my parents' bedroom. Um, It's this plaque. It's a plaque that I now hang in my home office. And the plaque reads, I sought my soul. My soul I could not see. I sought my God. My God eluded me. I sought my brother or sister. And I found all three. That hung near my father's bed till he died. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me?